Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Check one, check two. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening to Radio Lab. For kids! Radio Lab. From WNYC. Yep. <laughs> and I assume we're live on the air now. We don't do live. Have you guys ever talked to each other? I don't think so, no. Oh, this, so this is Chad Moonrod. Well, hi. This is Jim Glick. Hey, how are you? Fine, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Rainbows. Rainbows, rainbows. Okay, so we're going to start today with author <clears throat> James Glick. As I recall, you wanted to talk about Isaac Newton. That's right. We did call him to talk about Isaac Newton, but more specifically, colors. All right, Isaac Newton, he's 23 years old. 1665. And he's he's home for the holidays. No, there's no holiday. He's home for the plague. <laughs> there was actually a plague. They sent everybody home from school. In any case, he's in his room, famously solving all these mysteries of the world. And one of the questions that he thinks about during this break is... What are colors? Where do they come from? Like, when I see the color red, is that red, is it inside my head, or is it something that exists sort of out there in the world? Is the light without, or is the light within? Hmm. So he pokes a knife into his eye. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? Here's what Newton wrote in his notebook. I took a bodkin, put it betwixt my eye and the bone, as near to the back side of my eye as I could, and pressing my eye with the end of it, there appeared several white, dark, and colored circles. Did that lead him to some conclusion about where the spots live, whether they're outside or inside? No, (laughs) this didn't get him very far. Because seeing spots when you poke your eye doesn't tell you much about what color is. But um, But what he did next did, and this one he's a little more famous for. He got himself a prism, which is just a a bit of glass shaped like a pyramid. It wasn't so easy for him to get his hands on a prism, but he did. Then he shut his blinds so the room was totally dark, but he poked a little hole in one of the blinds, and then he waited. The sun had to be at just the right angle. And he waited. And when the sun got to just the right spot, a ray of light shot through the room. Newton immediately stuck his prism into the light, and the light shattered and became a rainbow on the wall. Or, in Newton's own words, a colored image of the sun. Now, that's gorgeous, isn't it? A colored image of the sun. That's Victoria Finley. She wrote a book about color, and she says, the thing to understand about this experiment is that at the time, people believed that white light was given by God or given given by this amazing thing called nature. The light from the sun was sort of holy. Yeah. If there was anything that was pure, it was white. So when the prism did the rainbow thing, which people knew prisms did, They just figured the colors are in there in the glass. In other words, that rainbow had nothing to do with the light itself. That was just the prism. Adding some kind of impurities to the light. Oh, wow. I hadn't thought of the possibility that the prism is muddying the light. It's polluting the light. How do you know that the prism isn't generating these colors? Yeah. So he got a second prism, and this was the trick. While the first prism was still making that rainbow on the wall... He moved a few feet away, and he held up a second prism in the blue area to see what would happen to the blue light. Would the prism add more colors to the blue light? Or would it be transformed in some other way? And what he found was 
Nothing happens. It remains blue. So we thought, hmm, if the blue light isn't getting muddied by the prism, then maybe the prism wasn't muddying the white light to begin with. Maybe that rainbow of colors was actually coming from inside the white light. He inferred that the first prism is dividing light into its constituent parts. Which means that the white light we see around us is actually constituted of all of these colors. The colors were in the light. They are the light. He had his answer. Light is a physical thing in the physical world. You can tweak it, test it, study it. This was the beginning of everything we know about light today. Which Newton put us on the road toward finding. That ultraviolet rays, x-rays, radio waves, they're all different energies of light. And colors are just energies within that little sliver that we can see. And that has led to our understanding of the greenhouse effect, knowing what stars are made of, even the age of our own universe. But not everybody was pleased by this. Well, a little bit later, John Keats, a romantic poet, was really cross with him in, in, a, in a poem because they said he reduced, removed all the poetry of the rainbow. And the real challenge to Newton's view of color, one that would really stick, oddly enough, it did come from a poet, not Keats, but uh, the poet named Goethe. <laughs> yeah, here's this German romantic poet. Um, that is author Jonah Lehrer. Regular with us, who writes about this kind of thing and always wonderfully. One day he is walking in the park and he spots these yellow crocuses. And he looks at the yellow crocuses and admires their petals. It's, you know, it's early spring and they're blooming. And then he quickly turns away. And in an instant... He suddenly sees this dash of violet across his eyes. He still sees the shape of the flower, but now it's violet. It's the opposite of yellow. He hadn't rubbed his eye, he hadn't stuck a needle in it, and yet, there it was. It seemed just as real. As real as the yellow crocus. And yet he knew it wasn't real. It came from inside his mind. And, and it was, you know, something, you know, we've all hallucinated colors. You can press on your eyeball or close your eyes and you see this riot of fireworks. But for Goethe... That simple observation leads him to think that maybe color isn't simply about the external universe, and maybe our perception of colors began in the world, but maybe it was finished inside the mind. And today, hundreds of years later, this is still an open question. A scientist can say color has an objective reality, but the colors we see are tricks of the imagination. And there is no perfectly objective view of color. I Personally, I like to keep both of those opinions in mind at the same time. Me too. Me three. Well, lucky for us, we're going to do a whole show of this. You don't say. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radiolab. And today... It's all about color. Yes. Where is color? Is it in? Is it out? That's the question. Yeah, we're going to explore that question through the eyes of a butterfly. In the killing fields of Cambodia. With a woman who may see colors the rest of us can only dream of. And we'll go back to a time when the sea apparently looked like dark red wine. Stick us in your ear holes because we're about to get colorful. And by the way, just before we get rolling, I just want to say, we did something kind of different for us uh, while making this hour. We put out this call to a bunch of musicians, solo artists, bands, to send us their favorite color songs, their own interpretations of their favorite color songs. And we got an amazing response. So throughout this hour, 
you're going to hear color songs of various kinds uh, woven into some of the pieces, between the pieces. Those songs, by the way, we have plans for. Yeah, big plans. You can go to our website, radiolab.org, to get a full list of the songs. And thank you, by the way, everybody who sent those, those songs in. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, should we go? Yes, let's. Uh, so to to get things going. Um, hey, here he's here. Here he is. Not long after we talked to Jim Glick about Sir Isaac Newton, we Thank talked you. to a neuroscientist by the name of Mark mm. Chengizi. So I'm going to chew grapes if that's all right with you. No. Who had written a book about color? Would you like some grapes? Uh, no, thanks. And we threw <laughs> the question at him. So one of the sort of debates that became interesting to us is this: Where is the color? Is it out there? I mean, is this grape that I'm holding right now? Is it red for everything? A bee, a whale. I mean, or is this? Does it exist? In a, in a way that you could pin down and say it's outside me, or does it only get to be red when it gets in my head? Uh, well, you can – another way, a more severe way to, to ask this, and I ask this whenever I'm giving talks, is just would aliens see it as red? Or, yeah, would, would aliens see it as red? Right, and, and, and the answer is uh, almost surely no. Truth is, says Mark, even your dog wouldn't see it as red. Uh, your dog has color vision. It has blue, yellow, and black, white. Really? Yes. So what would the world look like to a dog? I mean, if you've ever known a guy who's colorblind, and 10% of men are colorblind, that's roughly what it's like. Huh. Well, here's a question. If a dog and a human and a crow were to be staring at a rainbow, would they be seeing very different things? Yes. Now, this question that Robert just kind of tossed out during an interview, like about how different creatures would see the rainbow, this ended up taking us down a little wormhole, and we ended up actually getting a choir to help us illustrate uh, what we learned. But just to set a baseline, your normal rainbow goes like this, starting bottom up. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, Roy G. Biv. Roy G. Biv. Yeah, I don't know why people put the I in there, but that's it. If you didn't have the indigo, you couldn't say it, though. It'd be Roy G. Biv. That's why you need the I, I think, is to say the Roy G. Biv. That, by the way, is Tom Cronin. Uh, I'm what's called a visual ecologist. Mark suggested we give him a call. He told us that humans see seven colors in the rainbow. In the the case of the dog... Very different rainbow. uh, It's going to start off... Blue. Blue. He'll be able to see blue just fine. So it would see a rainbow starting with blue. Same blue we see. And then grading off into green. Same green as us. And then disappearing. The rainbow would end there. With a tiny bit of yellow thrown in. That's it? Yeah, so the rainbow will only be about half as thick as ours. Wow. Um, That's a sucky rainbow, dog. Yeah. That's why when God promised that he would never deliver another deluge, and he he made the promise in a rainbow, the dogs just were totally unimpressed. (laughs) (laughs) And what is it about the dog eye that makes it see this way? It doesn't have red-sensitive photoreceptors, no red-sensitive cones. The weird thing is that the difference between dogs and us, cone-wise... It's just one. They have cones tuned to blue and green, so do we. But we have this one extra, red, which doesn't really seem like a big difference. I mean, it's just one cone. But... To have three is so much better than two. That's Jay Knight's vision scientist. Because of this kind of multiplicative thing, red can get mixed with blue. Which makes purple. Or red can get mixed with yellow. To make orange. And green can mix with blue. To get teal or turquoise. And that's how we get about a hundred different shades of color that we can see. So by adding one photopigment, instead of adding just one more color, you actually add about 98 colors or so. 
All right, let's move on. So now we have a crow, unless you'd like to change right. the bird. Well, the crow is not so interesting because it's pretty much like us. Oh. So let's take a uh, let's take a, uh, something like a um, a sparrow. All right. Because sparrows have ultraviolet vision. What do they see? So they see the rainbow starts before our rainbow starts, where we just see sky. It would see an ultraviolet color, and then it would see the violet, then it would see the blue, and the uh, greens. And the oranges, and the yellow first, and the orange, and, and then the red, and probably would see further into the red than us because they have a more red-sensitive red receptor than we have. So it would see a much broader rainbow. It would start earlier, and it would end later. Woo! So should we assume that we've now that the sparrow is the champion? That that's the that's that's as high as it gets. If you're talking about vertebrates. If no, talking I'm talking about, about anything that has a heart and a mind and a. And a Once you body. leave the vertebrates, then all bets are off. You've got um, many animals have much better color vision than the vertebrates. Do. Oh, really? Yeah. Like what? Butterflies are a great example. Butterflies have five or six kinds of re- of color receptors. We only have three. Remember, butterflies see more colors oh. than we do. Yeah. So if a butterfly were looking at a rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> I never well, thought we'd uh, be here. Right, so wh- well, they do, I'm sure. I mean, butterflies are out there when, when uh, the rainbows are out. But we see colors we have no names for between the blues and the greens and the greens and the yellows. Ooh. So it would go from ultraviolet, it would see that. Yep. Then it would see violet. And then blue. And then blue, blue, green? Yep. And green, green, bluey, bluey, or whatever. Right. And then orange and red and all that? Yep. They have very complicated eyes. Huh. Okay, so just to recap, All right. here's the dog. Here's us, humans. Now the sparrow. A little bit more bass, a little bit more high end, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And finally, the butterfly. Which is, you know, not so far above the sparrow, but it's got more mids in there. So I'm now thinking butterfly, butterflies get the crown. Yeah, but... Then you, if you go onto coral reefs, you come across these animals called mantis shrimps. What are they called? Meta? Like mantis, like a praying mantis. Oh, oh. mantis shrimp. It, the shrimp catches prey using an arm like a praying mantis has. Oh. Uh, uh, mantis shrimps are, are mostly pretty small, about the size of a finger. Some get to be as big as your forearm. They're uh-huh. big, big oh. animals. I'm actually looking this up right here. <gasps> oh, my God. They're so colorful. No, they are colorful, though. Here, look at this. Oh my no, God! They're d- just like a—it's like they're electric colored. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. like turquoise or something. Iridescent, and their eyes are like little cartoon eyes. They're gigantic. Yeah, they have two really big eyes right on the front. And you said that dogs have two cones. We have three. How much does the butterfly have again? Butterfly has five. Yeah, depends on the butterfly. Uh, mantis shrimps have sixteen. Sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you have 16... uh, 16 kinds of receptors. (laughs) What would the rainbow look like to them? I mean, could they even see it? Manuscript would see the rainbow fine because they live in very shallow water, and so the water is pretty clear, almost like air. They would start the rainbow way, way, way inside where we see violet. They would see an extraordinarily deep ultraviolet. And then they would go on through several kinds of ultraviolet, probably five or six kinds of ultraviolet. (laughs) And then they would get to violet, which which is now they're reaching our colors, and go through violet and violet, blue and blue and blue-green. Where they have those green-green, blue-blue-blues as well? Yep. And then they would go out into the reds. So they would be about, about as red as us when they got to the red end. But only in the reds? Yeah. 
What a rainbow that must be. Yeah. They have the most complicated visual system of any animals by a factor of two or more. Wait, 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 wait. He said any. Do you mean you mean, you mean that unequivocally any? Yeah. No other animal that we know of has a visual system within 50% as complicated. All right. Mantis. But, you know, on the other hand, their brains are tiny, so who knows what it turns into. So they may not have the ability to perceive the beauty of the rainbow in the way that... No, I don't, I don't, no, they they vanish from sort of into violence. They're not really into beauty. They go around and, and kill things. That's, I mean, really, that's what they do. That's, that's one reason they're so fascinating. Is how, how, they how, love to go around and kill things. What, what do they fishes, kill? Uh, crabs, other managed shrimps, shrimps, octopuses. They'll kill octopuses? Yeah, small ones. A good-sized mantis shrimp will, can break the wall of an aquarium. Well, really? Yeah, there's uh, there's ones in California that can break aquarium walls if they hit it hard. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you have a pugnacious Muhammad Ali seagoing <laughs> exactly. animal with incredibly great visual sense. <laughs> Special thanks to Jim Briggs, our engineer, for the uh, choir session, which was a blast. To Mark Shangizi for setting us off in this direction. To Michael Kirshner and the Young New Yorkers Chorus. And John McClay and the Grace Church Choral Society and those folks from the Collegiate Chorale and the Desaf Choirs who joined us. And to Alex Ambrose of WQXR for getting everybody together. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so we, we did the thing about the mantis shrimp. Mm-hmm. And um, partially because of us, partially because I think just the world was ready, the mantis shrimp has become a little bit of a celebrity animal. It's become a, quite a oh, popular yeah. little crustacean. It's been crustacean. celebrated in cartoon. It's yes, been it has. celebrated on television. Yes, it it's has. Had its, had its, it's had its moments. It has had its moment. Well, and deservedly so when you think about what, you know, when you think about what its rods and cones apparently are able to appreciate. Yeah. You know, you just want to close your eyes and imagine whatever it is that animal might be seeing. Which is what we tried to do years ago. Uh, but what, as happens, the science keeps going. And uh, one of the things that happened recently in the last few years is that the, the people who study the mantis shrimp, mm. they have released more knowledge about what it might be seeing. And uh, we're going to update you on that on that right now. Uh, but first, can I just tell you something? Yeah. I actually got to meet a mantis shrimp just very, very recently. <laughs> in Brooklyn, as I recall. In Coney Island. Yes. Oh, sure. oh, yeah. I have dreamt of this moment, I must say. So the mantis is in one of these tanks. Yeah, one of these saltwater tanks. Producer Amanda Naranchek and I, we found a fish store Wait. in Coney Island. Warmer. It must be in Warmer. Warmer. That actually had a real live mantis. Oh, hello. Wow. It looks exactly as I imagined it. It's so, wow, they're so cool. He was sort of tucked away in an aquarium in the corner of this sort of dimly lit shop. Uh, the shop is run by this guy. Chris Martin from Creative Equimination. Hi, Chris. Excellent. And this is your store? Yes. Okay. And how long have you been here? Uh, four years. Four Chris years sells uh, all kinds of fish. Tons of brittle starfish, urchin, different kinds of clownfish. 
We have designer clownfish. Hey, have you ever heard of designer clownfish? Have you heard I of this? I have. Like apparently these fashion designers are designing new clownfish. We know, so like you have a Gucci clownfish or a Louis Vuitton clownfish. Stop. Yeah, definitely. Actually called designer clownfish. Just a little weird fish fact. Anyhow, back to the uh, mantis. It was in the corner of the shop in this aquarium of reinforced glass. We actually got someone from um, Sri Lanka. This mantis strip came from Sri Lanka? Yeah. This is one of the stranger creatures I've ever seen. And have you ever seen one of these things up close? They're very, very stunningly colored. Oh my God. Oh my God. The color is just, I mean, astounding. Yeah, these are called peacock because they're particularly colorful. This was the particular guy that we saw, he was hiding in a tube in the middle of the aquarium. He, this was a peacock mantis shrimp, as they're called. Mm. So if you can imagine, like it's got, it's, they're big, first of all. They're like seven inches or so. So that's a big creature. And uh, if you can imagine the head of a hermit crab painted like a peacock stuck on the bright green slithering body of a miniature dragon. <laughs> that's what it looks like. I mean, they're the weirdest looking things that you've ever seen. God, you can really see its eyes like swiveling in all different directions. And they have these really big googly eyes. Yeah, that's a, they have beautiful eyes. Well, we're looking at a peacock mantis shrimp. It's sitting in a, in a uh, lucite tube. And it's looking out at the world. It's treating the tube like it's its home burrow, which it would have if it was in the wild. It's basically looking for something to eat. Okay, so the voice you just heard, that's uh, Tom Cronin, our mantis expert from the last mm-hmm. segment. He's your salesperson? No, he's an expert. He's an expert, okay. I mean, he sells science. <laughs> he drove down from Baltimore to meet us. And remember when he was telling us in, in the last segment a while ago that the mantis are these violent little bastards? They love to go around and kill things. Yes. He was not kidding. I just want to like describe this to you before we talk about the vision. All right, we're staring at peacock mantis shrimp huddled in a tube in an aquarium. And Chris is about to feed. Now, what kind of, what's the poor little blue thing that you're about to put in? We're actually going to feed him a damselfish. At a certain point, Chris uh, drops in this little blue fish. Looks a little bit like Dory from that movie. So here it goes. Drops it into the mantis tank. Oh, oh, fish is in. And now the fish is sensibly hiding in the back. Fish is hiding behind the tube, as the fish should. The little Dory fish swim around for like, I don't know, five minutes trying to find a way out. The whole time, the mantis was like icy calm, just chilling in its tube. And then, oh, oh, is it coming out? Is it coming out? I think it's coming out. It launched out of its tube and then... Ah! <laughs> just whoosh, pow! Like, like, wow, that was just so sudden. You can hear the snap as it hit it. I mean, it made Amanda and I scream. <laughs> we just, it, we, it was shocking. You know, because they have these claws on the front of their body that they use to punch their prey, and you can literally hear the snap from across the room. And then he, and this was sad, he then took a lap and then came back and, and just, oh, oh, just punched the fish a few more times. Oh, oh wow, that's, that's, that's a hard ending for, that, for the oh, damsel fish. fish. It's been hit three oh, or four wow. times now. This is one of those like nature moments where you're sort of amazed, but you also sort of want to cry. But so, so okay, so, let's talk about his vision. Now he's just, he's back in his hovel and he's just cleaning his eyes now. After it killed the fish, it went back to its tube and started kind of like scrubbing its eyeballs with its little brushes. <laughs> so crazy. Well, he's doing his eye thing, which is yes, the important is. thing. Because it knows that it's got the best eyes in the house. He was like, did you see what I did to that fish? <laughs> now check out my eyes. <laughs> and as for what those eyes see, our, I, our notion of that has totally changed over the last few years. So uh, for that, I'm going to bring in another marine biologist that Amanda talked to. Do you mind introducing yourself? Uh, no, to who? 
to me, like, um, my name is <laughs> Professor sure. Marshall, and this is what yeah. I do for a living. And you want me to do that now? Now is good. <laughs> now is good. Okay. Yeah. So, hello, my name is Justin Marshall. I'm a, uh, a marine biologist and neuroscientist working on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Hi, Justin! Just for context, he, Justin is the guy who basically put the mantis on the map. Mm-hmm. He, um... He was the first guy, his lab was the first lab to, to notice that they saw color at all. Oh, yeah, that, I mean, that was cool. That was um, at the University of Sussex. It's about 1995, 96. Apparently, uh, he had a colleague from uh, West Africa who was wearing this particular dress. She had this wonderfully colorful traditional dress on. She walks into his lab where he's got all the aquariums, and immediately all the mantis shrimp rushed to the, begin- to the top of the aquarium, and they're like, hey! <laughs> <laughs> She walked in and the shrimps went wild. What does that mean? Uh, they started waving their appendages and they show off all their colors. Now that I know a little bit about mantis shrimps, I know exactly what they were saying to her, which would be entirely inappropriate. Oh, they were they were turned on as far yeah, as Yeah, they tell. were all aroused. They were saying, hello, colorful thing, what should we do? So Justin was the guy that basically proved... Okay, these animals have color vision. Like they see color, he confirmed that with this experiment with colored containers. With mantis shrimps, you can get them to go and just beat the living daylights out of a, a thing that's colorful because they love to smash things. So anyhow, uh, that was all background. Here's the new information. Mm-hmm. Recently, Justin and his lab decided to ask a new question. He decided to say, all right, these, all of these shrimp, they have so many rods and cones in their eyes. And by the way, he would say there were 12 rods and cones in their eyes, mm-hmm. not 16, okay. which is still four times what we have. Right. So it's a lot. All right, they've got all these rods and cones. How well do they use them? I wonder what that means. How well do they use them? They have them. They must use them for something. Well, it's sort of like if you're a scientist, you can't just assume that they see things the way that we see things. Oh, I mean, you kind of have to make sure. Not. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, he, his simple question to start off was how well do they see different shades of the same color? Uh. It's like the kind of thing that we do at the grocery store all the time. So, you know, if you go pick a banana from a, a store, even if you pick one that's just gone yellow, it's, it's still a little bit green. You're like, is it too green, not yellow enough, too yellow? You, you know, you use your eyes to make the call. Right. You wonder, can the shrimp do that? Can this animal distinguish between this shade of red and that shade of red, this blue and that blue? Can they make those fine distinctions? Well, I assume so. Yeah. Because they got all the rods and cones, right. right? I mean, they wouldn't have all those things in their eyes if they weren't putting them to some extraordinary use. And the obvious use would be more blue or more green. More yellow, yeah, sure. More yellow. Exactly. Yeah. But he wanted to be sure. So what, what you do is you say, all right, mantis shrimp, I'm going to give you food from this yellow thing. So what he did basically is that he would show the shrimp a yellow light, give him some food. Yellow light, food, yellow light, food. They quickly learned that yellow means food. Cool. So then he shows the shrimp a blue light where there is no food, and naturally... It learns to ignore that very quickly because the food's at the yellow, it's not at the blue. Right. Most animals can do this. But then what he did is he sort of mixed it up. He would gradually make the blue side, the non-food side, a little more yellow. Very gradually. He would shift the color. From blue through to blue-green, through to green. Then green-yellow, just to see if the shrimp could tell the difference between yellow, which means food... And yellow-green, which doesn't mean food. That's what we did, and we expected the mantis shrimp to have far better distinction at that sort of level, and were surprised to find that it was the worst animal on the planet so far tested. No, no. Are you exaggerating? No, not at all. Our champion of the rainbow was the worst creature ever tested. The worst. So, in other words, 
nature gives them a panoply of choice and then they can't tell the difference? Then what's the point of that? that, that <laughs> there's there's a, something wrong with this theory. I know. It's kind of tragic. If I'm Benjamin Moore and I say to you, come to my paint store, I'm going to show you 50 shades of purple and you can only see three, then what are you doing in there? Like, I, I don't know what you're Yeah, doing. they like, seem to have the equipment to see all the purple, all the colors, all the many, many shades. Uh, but so, so they've got these amazing eyes, but they just don't seem to use them the way that we do. I don't understand that. Yeah. Okay. So this is where you need to start thinking about color and what colors are. I mean, according to Justin Marshall, the basic thing to understand is that you don't actually see color with your eyes. I mean, you're taking the light with your eyes, obviously, but then the color is perceived in your brain. And um, they have these little insect brains that don't seem to do color the way that our brains do. The way in which we see color is if I see a thing, let's say somebody wearing a blue sweater walking down the street, a nice looking lady or gentleman wearing a blue thing, and my blue photoreceptor in my eye gets really excited. So your brain's going to see that and think, blue, that's a blue sweater. Right. Now, if that blue sweater had a little bit of red in it, the red photoreceptor would also buzz, but not as loudly. And it's actually the ratio of those excitations that gives my brain the sensation of color. Your brain will basically say, all right, got a lot of blue, a little bit of red, what could that be? Magenta. That's what you end up seeing. Like, your brain sort of paints the gap. And that's how every animal on the planet sees color, except for mantis shrimps. Its brain doesn't seem that interested (laughs) in painting gaps. So back in our segment when we said it sees a full, throated, wide-voiced spectrum of color... Like this ecstatic, glorious vision. The best rainbow view of all creatures on Earth. That's what we said. That's what we said. More more variety in the rainbow than we can or than anybody can. That was our thought. That was our thought. We might need to amend that. <laughs> I mean, so they still see colors that we don't see, but they might not just be seeing as many colors as we thought. Like maybe their rainbow is more a series of, of rather focused discrete bands of color with not a lot in between. I am very, very... Well, that's actually extraordinarily puzzling. They're given the equipment that we use to see various shades of color, and they don't use it to see shades of color? What do they use it to see? Well, they use it to... uh, I mean, this is all speculative, but... uh, You know, Tom Cronin was telling us in the fish shop that, like, the science seems to be heading towards this idea that they use colors to communicate. And if that's the case, like, they don't need to see all the colors. They just need to see the ones that mean something. At least in the ultraviolet, there's really good evidence now. It's not not published, so I don't want to talk about it too much because it's not my work. But it looks like different parts of the UV have very different meanings. Like, one part might mean fear. Don't Mm. go there. Another might mean sex. I'd like to get to know more about this. Maybe another part means home. Who knows? It certainly varies species to species. We're talking about a whole range of at least 500 species. So to, to sort of blanket an explanation over that is a bit simple. But what you're saying is that instead of seeing rainbows, they're, they're, they're having a conversation with the color. Yeah, maybe. They just so this is do... their vocabulary? That is, they have all these rods and cones so they can talk to the world, not that they can 
see the beauty of and this is complicated but they have the, they can do polarized light oh yeah. which is we like can't do that. we can't which is so hard to explain but apparently it's thought that some species can flash polarized light at each other as a way of communicating somehow i'm not even going to try and explain that cuz i don't get it they are uh, an unbelievably amazing and different system to any other animal on the planet so uh, you've got to ask yourself the question, why? And I've been asking myself that question for 30 years, and I guess I'm a failure because I still haven't answered it. So you could call me a failed biologist. <laughs> I don't think we would do that. I don't think we're going to do that. that seems, not really. Yeah, that seems not really true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I'm left with is that at the end of the day, I mean, you know, yeah, it has eyes. Uh, we have eyes. We assume that its eyes do for it what our eyes do for us, but uh, apparently not. And I don't think a choir is going to bridge this gap. That's what's called an umwelt. Like, like every animal in the world lives with its own senses in a world that is defined by those senses. And in a way, it's one of those tragic things that as try as you will, you will never know what a bat knows when it echolates. You will never know what a deer when it looks out, because we know that deer don't see orange. That's why all the hunters wear bright orange and yellow. They just don't see that range. Huh. Do they see more of something else? I don't know. Well, how do? What's an umwelt? It's U M W. It's it's a great word. Umwelt. It it's the word that says that you are limited by what you can feel, touch, smell, see. Yeah. No. On some level, I mean, I feel like that's a problem that exists even between people. Of course. You know what I mean? It's like I have, I I regularly have moments with my wife where I'm like, that's (laughs) that's not blue. And she's like, yeah, it's totally blue. I have that too. I have that all the time. I sometimes wonder, I don't have, I have no idea what you're seeing right now. I know. That's the lonely part. The unlonely part is that you can try. Yeah, that is, it is, it is really fun to try. So we'll just keep trying. The original Mantis Shrimp episode was produced by Tim Howard and Pat Walters. And updated by our producer, Amanda Aronchek. Very special thanks to Chase Kolpon for recording the choir the second time around, and to Chris Martin from Creative Aquarium Nation, Michael Kirshner, and the Young New Yorkers Chorus. And they have quite a range. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab, and today we're talking about color. And we just learned that there are creatures out there who can see colors that we can't even imagine. Like the amazing mantis shrimp. I would so love to be a mantis shrimp and see what the mantis shrimp sees. Yeah. Okay. And that actually brings us back to Jay Knights. I'm a professor of ophthalmology, University of Washington, Seattle. Jay has actually spent his entire career trying to get creatures to see colors that they normally can't see. I, well, yeah. And he started, this is kind of an interesting story, uh, by taking some colorblind monkeys who couldn't see red. They have blue cones, green cones, but no red cones. Which is not unlike a lot of human males. In any case... He had these monkeys and was able to take the human gene for the red cone, wrap it in a virus, inject it into the monkey's eyes, and bam, the monkeys suddenly had red cones. Yeah. Oh, my God. So it had blue, green, 
and red. Was this like LASIK? So it was just like a 10-minute outpatient situation for the monkeys? <laughs> I would say close. Close to LASIK. Could they then now see red? Well, every single morning before they get their breakfast, they have to do their color vision test. So... So we'd sit each monkey at a computer. We had a touch screen. And the screen looks totally gray. But in that field of gray, he adds a little red blob. Right. Now here's the key. We use grape juice as the reinforcement. For the monkeys. But the game is. You have to touch the blob before you get your juice. So before the surgery, they weren't seeing any blobs, and they weren't getting any juice. Because all they could see was gray. So a little red blob could be right there in front of them, and they'd never see it. And the morning after their uh, Lasix color booster shot... Okay, touch it if you see it. They... still couldn't see it. Day after day, they would do their test. Mm -hmm. And every day they would fail. Every day they would fail. No blob, no juice. But it's fun for them. They get out of their cage and they talk to their friends and... Did you fail? Yeah, I failed. I failed. <laughs> you failed. I failed. <laughs> another day, another fail. Until one morning, after about 20 weeks, Jay woke up the monkeys, gave them the test. And they began to not fail. Really? If you watch the video of this, it actually looks like the monkey is like... Wow, you know, I'm not having any failures. And check out this dot. Look at this thing. Check it out. So (laughs) I did get some sense that they felt like that their life had improved. (laughs) Now, if this works so well with the monkeys, couldn't you take a colorblind human and, and give them back the thing they're missing? Absolutely. We could cure colorblindness in a human with exactly this technique. Really? The only thing that we have to do is convince the FDA that the risks uh, are low enough and the benefit is high enough that it'd be something we could do in people. You've never tried tried it? No, we've never tried it. Although I get a lot of emails that say, I don't care what the risks are. I've even had offers. How about if I come to your laboratory and you don't tell anybody late at night and you give me the shot in the eye and we won't (laughs) tell anyone? Which brings us back to our original question. If you can take a colorblind human and give them normal color vision, could you take a normal color seer and boost them to make them a little more shrimpy? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, yeah. We, mm-hmm. You said, sure, why not? But then there's the whole FDA thing. But here's the real surprise. Jay says there are some people who are already a little bit mantis shrimp-like. There are color mutants, if I may call them that, in the nicest possible way, among us. Or they're out there in theory. Okay, so here's the deal. The genes for the cones in our eyes that see color, you know, the red, green, blue cones, they're on the X chromosome. Now men, as we know, only have one of those. Women have two X chromosomes. Which means that women have two sets of these cone-making genes. Normally one set is just a spare, It's not used, but still they've got two sets. And so someone said, aha. It is theoretically possible that in some women, this spare set of genes might mix up, turn on, morph into a whole new cone, a fourth cone. We're going to call it the yellow cone. So people with normal color vision are trichromats because we've got three cones. A woman like that would be a tetrachromat. So altogether, she'd have a blue cone, a green cone, a yellow cone, and a red cone. But she wouldn't just see more yellow. 
This new yellow would mix with the red and the blue and the green to create thousands, maybe millions of more shades of color. This amazing the technicolor is not the right word. It's whatever would be the next kind of color that would be even more super duper. This was just a thought experiment? Yeah, but... Um, Jay actually figured out a way to test for this. We can look in people's blood and I can say, this woman has the genes for blue cones, green cones, yellow cones, red cones. Oh, so you can do a DNA test, really. Yeah. So he started doing blood tests and he found this one woman. She worked at the same place we did. Crazily enough. At the university. He looked at her DNA and he saw the gene for the fourth cone. Yeah. So did she see in super technicolor or how would you even know? That was that was a problem. <laughs> and so we thought of an experiment in order to be able to see whether or not she had this extra dimension of color vision. He was able to produce these two yellow lights that to us, you know, trichromats, normal trichromats, look totally identical. We're colorblind to that difference. But to a tetrachromat, a woman with this fourth cone, they would look totally different. Yeah. So I brought her in. I said, okay, here it is. Do you see these as different? And she said, no, no. I don't see them as <laughs> any different. No. <laughs> but the story doesn't end there. Good. <laughs> Jay told us about a colleague of his in England. She's at Newcastle. Named Gabrielle Jordan, and she apparently found eight of these women with the extra cone. And out of those eight? Seven of those women behaved exactly like the person that I had tested. Couldn't see the difference. But one of them... Took one look at those two yellows and said... No, they look totally different to me. Oh, ho. <laughs> one of these women was saw, the, saw, saw it as different. So one of them had the cone, but you could use it, and the others had the cone, but couldn't use it? Yep. So why is that? Yeah, why? Well, this is the part, if you'd like, I could tell you what my theory is of what's going on. Yeah. So I think that... Jay says, let's just imagine you grow up in a world without color. Completely and totally a black and white world. Houses would be painted black and white. Printers would only print in black and white. Even the TV. They would just have black and white TV. Women's makeup would be just, you know, either dark or light. So it wouldn't make any difference if you had color vision because you would never use that color vision. There'd be no words for color. Now, just to make it interesting, let's imagine one day a bright red apple plops into your world. How would you react to it? Would you so, see it, you think? Well, so that's a very good question. Maybe, says Jay, even though you have the ability to see that red apple, if you've never had a chance to use that ability to practice, it may just lay dormant. And that, he thinks, might be what happens to women living with the extra cone in our world. There very rarely subjected to colors that would stimulate their extra kind of cone differently. So you're saying those other colors just aren't around enough for them? Yeah. Everything that we make is based on the fact that humans are trichromatic. The television only has three colors. Our color printers have three different colors. There's nothing out there that we make artificially that a tetrachromat could see. But Jay says, maybe. Some women because they're just more aware or because of the job that they do. Maybe someone who works with color all the time, like a florist or a painter. Little by little. Because they're paying such close attention. Their brain would learn to see that difference.
So naturally, we wanted to find one of these mythic well, ladies. Well, I hope they're not mythic, maybe. Yeah. The reason I say that is because we tried to find that one woman that he mentioned, you know, the one out of eight. Yeah. And we had a, a, a really hard time, and we began to doubt that she even existed. <laughs> and then we began to look online, and you see all these websites saying, Are you a tetrachromat? Contact us. Contact us. Everybody is searching for these women, and we, we began to feel like we were chasing unicorns a little bit. <laughs> but then our producer, Tim Howard, claimed claimed that he had found one. Yeah, you are. He'd been in touch with Jay. Jay told him that he tested a woman, determined that she had the fourth cone, and this woman was an interior designer. Oh. But Jay had not yet determined whether she could use her fourth cone, so we sent Tim to Pittsburgh, where she lives, to see what he could find out. Hey, how are you? Hi, I'm Susan Hogan. I'm a mother of three and an interior designer. What was she like? She's great. Oh, you have a jukebox. Uh-huh. <laughs> really? Wow. You want me to play something? How about number 307? It just seems appropriate because it's about color. Whiter shade of pale. <laughs> um, she told me a lot about how she uses color in her work. You see the different colors of paint. Because yeah. she thinks a lot about it in terms of painting walls. I know the way. The sun is oriented in a room. Each wall will look a different color, even though you paint. In any case, here was my plan. I'd uh, ordered this test before I went to Pittsburgh that Jay had suggested I get. Um, All right, open it, open it, open it. It involved these little pieces of brown fabric. Okay. They all look identical. They look strikingly the same to me. Yeah, Lynn, Brenna, me, Soren. Those are completely indistinguishable. Yeah. Couldn't see a difference. Do they all look the same to you guys? Yes. But I'm assuming they're actually not all the same. That's the trick. Jay said, if you show them to a real tetrachromat, they're going to be able to see these subtle differences that, you know, you and I can't see. And um, back to Pittsburgh. So how about we head over toward that tree? Is that, that look good? I'm going to take my shoes off oh, yeah. it'll be much more fun <laughs> yeah. for me. We ended up doing the test in a nearby park. We're going to do a bunch of these, if you don't mind. In the first trial, right. I took out three of the swatches. Two that were exactly the same and one that was supposedly different. And when you took it out, could you see the difference? No, no. Huh. So I go behind the tree and I whisper into the mic, number three is different. Number three. I hope you couldn't hear me. No, I'll let you take a look. She steps back from the swatches, gives it a look for a moment, and then she says... Number three. Said, Third one is different. <laughs> Looks more neutral, less red than one and two on the left. One for one. Luck. So I went behind the tree. All right, I one second. Changed up the swatches. So that now, the middle swatch was the odd one out. And same same deal, ready, set, go. Easy. <laughs> Which number looks different? Number the middle four, one. Number two. Mm-hmm. You are right. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Then I figured I got to make it harder. I, I switched it up, and I made it so all three are different, and I didn't tell her. All three are different. All three different. I wow. have green, red, less red. <laughs> as I Knocking it out of the park. Why didn't I do this well on my SATs, Tim? <laughs> wow, you found her. I, I, I was sure that she was not going to be. There's no way this test can work. <laughs> well, it actually might not have totally worked. Wait, what? Did she start to fail? There, there's one little thing I didn't mention. How you doing? What? I brought along a friend. I'm Jason LaCroix painter. Landscape. Still life. Thought I'd try him out as a control. 
Oh, because you were thinking, uh, let's get someone who likes color but is a boy and can't be a tetrachromat. Right. Okay, so and uh, when we tried the exact same test with him... I mean, these three, they look the same, don't they, to you? No? I see different. <laughs> he was amazing. Uh-oh. Every time... The first one on the left. Two jumped out immediately. Mm-hmm. Number one. They all three look different to me. Wow. Was he just as good as Susan? Yeah. I was a little bit disappointed, I gotta say. And there was nowhere where he couldn't do it and she could? No, but I mean, I only had pieces of brown cloth, (laughs) you know? So it doesn't prove anything, I guess. She still might be a tetrachromat, right? For all I know. And there was this one moment. I know it doesn't prove anything, but I asked her her about the sky. And the sky was just that quintessential sky blue. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was, I was like, what do you see? And she's like, I see, um, do you see some of the pink in the blue? See, I see a lot of pink, like, among the blue. There's red in that blue section. She was looking up at a blue sky and seeing red? Yeah, yeah. Do you see that? No. Oh, I see so much red, like, up in, and it's... Uh, it's kind of a cop-out, but it's just kind of that perfect sky blue. Okay, that's, that's a good, it's just mixed in there. That's cool. One thing I don't see is any green in that blue. I just see reds, right, especially around like white clouded section. And at that moment, I felt like my sky is boring. I'm so sorry for you. For us. I'm sorry for us. How do I know? I mean, how do we know that it, any of this makes sense? <laughs> you know, that's the fun of it. I guess. Yeah. And so it was. As a miller told his tale That a face at first just goes lean Turn to water Shade of pain Hey, I'm Jada Bumrod. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. We're going to keep going with our show on colors now with... A story about, well... Hey, blue. The color of the sky. Most beautiful color. Well, <clears throat> well I except think so. red. Nah. Yeah. You gotta... It's a story that we find really surprising, frankly. And it comes from our producer, Tim Howard. Yes. Hello. Um, who uh, heard it from... Do you want to yeah, set, no set up who this guy is? Uh, so Guy Deutscher is a linguist and a writer. And uh, I came across his book. Called Through the Language Glass. And he tells us one particular story in it that uh, starts in, I think, 1858 with this guy, William Gladstone, who was an incredibly famous politician in England. He was four times prime minister in the second half of the 19th century. Every school kid knows who he is, even now. Mm. But there's one thing that not many people know about Gladstone. Well... He was a, a homo fanatic. As the soldiers marched, the gleam went dazzling from the magnificent bronze all about through the upper air to the heavens. He was a, a deeply religious man, and for him, the Iliad and Odyssey were almost like a second Bible. Sipping the black blood, the tall shade perceived me and cried out sharply. He read them over and over again throughout his life. So he was into Homer. Yes. And so, early on in his career, Gladstone decided to write the definitive history of Homer. This huge 
book, actually three books, thousands of pages, where he discussed a whole range of, of issues relating to Homer and his world. And here's the thing. As he was reading, doing his research and everything, he made this very strange discovery. That the way Homer talks about color in the Iliad and the Odyssey is extremely odd. It's odd? Very, very odd. How so? To start with, he uses extremely strange terms for colors of, of simple objects. The most famous one, perhaps, is... The wine-dark sea. The wine-dark. wine, wine dark. The wine-dark sea. It's, it's it looks a, like wine. looks like wine. I, is it possibly like a, a poetic kind of thing? That's what you would naturally think. But the other thing he calls um, wine color are oxen. <laughs> <laughs> But, but it's more than just wine. Take the color violet, which to me and probably to you purple. is like purple. Yeah. Light purple. When Homer uses it. He talks about the sheep. The cyclops rams were... In the cyclops caves as having... A dark violet. Wool. But that's just fantasy. I mean... <laughs> but the other thing that he also says is violet is iron. Iron. So, okay. chew on that. <laughs> or how about this one? What is both the color of honey... And the color of uh, faces pale with fear. I uh, no idea. If you ask Homer, those are... Green. Green, honey? He didn't call his forest green. He didn't call his leaves green. I mean, it all seems to be wrong. And um, this was totally puzzling to Gladstone. Homer was Gladstone's absolute hero. So he found it difficult to understand or accept why someone who was so perceptive would use such defective terms, as Gladstone call it. So he starts going through the Iliad and the Odyssey again, page by page, and he counts how many times each color appears. You mean like how many times he uses the word black or blue or whatever? Yeah, and um, it only takes a couple pages for him to notice. The predominance of black and white. That the term black. Black days, black carrion flies black. under his black brows. Black, 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 black. Occurred. Black, black about 170 times in both books. Huh. White, white arms, white cloud, the white sail, white ram. Occurred white, about white, 100 times. White, 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 but red? A blood-red serpent. Only clocks in at about 13 times. The red wine to the it's gods. A big drop. Yellow? Dawn in her yellow robe. robe. Under 10 times. Green? His teeth chatter in green fear. Also under 10. Hmm. And then Gladstone realizes something crazy. The color blue? Um. Zero times. What? There's just no word that describes the color blue in any of Homer's poems. He does not use the word blue at all? No blue. No blue. Not even once? Nope. So Gladstone thought, huh, bizarre. Yeah. And uh, he started looking in other classic Greek texts too. And there? He kept finding all of these strange uses of color. Violet hair and things like that. And after um, thinking about this for a long time... Gladstone concluded that Homer was colorblind. But also that all the Greeks were colorblind. Well, he thought all of them were colorblind? Yes, that they saw the world in black and white, maybe with a touch of red. His thought was that they were straining to see these other colors that were kind of just outside of their reach. And then their kid would inherit that 
effort, or their kid would just be a little bit better. Oh, so that's how we got color. So Homer Jr. would be able to see a little bit of yellow because Homer tried really hard to see yellow. And, and then Homer the third would be better than Homer the second. So yeah, on. and then this would happen again and again every generation down 3,000 years to the present day. It, it just seemed the only, you know, the, the only possible explanation. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. <laughs> We know today, of course, I mean, that, that the, the, our color vision goes back probably about 30 million years. You know, to like when we were still in the jungle, climbing trees. Exactly. So um, generally, people mocked him. No one took him seriously. So then how do people explain the no blue and Homer thing? Well, here the plot thickens. Ten years after Gladstone's Homer debacle... This other guy. A German-Jewish philologist called um, Lazarus Geiger. Lazarus Geiger. A German-Jewish what, did he say? A philologist, which I thought was a linguist. It basically means he studies ancient texts. He finds pretty much the same kind of weird stuff that Gladstone did. But he finds it not just in ancient Greek texts, but all over the place. Sorry. This one? He looked at uh, the old Icelandic sagas. Ancient Chinese. So, where, what's this, what's this room? Right now we're in the public catalog room. I actually went to the New York Public Library and talked to this librarian. Uh, who can speak German. So, and we got out Geiger's book. Development history of mankind. Wait a second, I know this voice. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's, that's my girlfriend. Um, my name is Brooke Watkins and I'm a librarian at the New York Public Library. She helped me find some very cool passages in Geiger's book. Let's do it first, let's do it in German. Geiger has this amazing quotation. Okay, ich versuche. About the Indian Vedic poems. Diese Lieder aus mehr als 10,000 Versen, Versen bestehen. And what does that say? These hymns of more than 10,000 lines are brimming with descriptions of the heavens. Scarcely is there any subject evoked more frequently. The sun and reddening dawn's play of color, day and night, cloud and lightning, the air and the ether are unfolded before us and over and over in splendor and vivid fullness. But there's only one thing that no one would ever learn from those ancient songs who do not already know it, and that is that the sky is blue. <laughs> it gets weirder. Hmm. You ready? Um, yeah. You ready for this? I'm totally ready. All right, because Geiger then wondered, all right, if there's no blue in any of these old texts, then when did blue come into these languages? Yeah. So he did this massive analysis to trace when each color term was first introduced to each language. And what he found was... The, the order at which languages seem to acquire these color terms is not entirely random. First, black and white. Every language has black and white. Then when they get their first color term... Red always comes first. Always red. After red, it's always yellow. Really? Yeah. And then green, and blue only at the very end. So black, white, red, green, yellow, and then blue? Yeah. And that's universal? Well, as people discovered more and more languages, they found some exceptions. But a couple things held, even from Geiger. Out of these colors, red is always first, and blue is always last. Why? 
Well, I mean, why would there be an order at all? And why would blue always be last? Well, here's where you get to the guessing part. Okay. I think it might have to do with a couple of things. First, in Homer's world, he wouldn't have actually been exposed to a lot of blue things. Actually, if you think about it, blue is extremely rare in nature. Blue foods? No. Blue animals? Blue animals. How about plants? There's a few blue plants. Like what? Um, flowers that are really blue are extremely rare. A lot of flowers that we think of as blue, they're actually... Artificial flowers. We made them blue. Uh, Genetically, you mean? Yeah. What about blue eyes? Blue eyes at the time were in short supply um, <laughs> among the Greeks. But here's where we get the guy's main point. He says you don't really need a word for a color until you can make that color reliably. And the reason that red might have been first is that red is apparently one of the easiest to produce. You can just take a dried piece of red clay and you can use it as a crayon, which is why paints made out of ochre go back something like 60,000 years. And blue? Blue is the hardest of all. For thousands of years, no one had it. One exception, the Egyptians. The Egyptians. Ooh. And they, and only they, had their own word for blue. So that's it? That's your answer? Yeah. Like, it's all, no blue dyes, no blue words? That's not interesting? I, I want more than that. What, what do you mean more? I don't know, something more to say than just it's about right, dyes. Well, here you go. As I was calling around, I ran into something that made me think Hello, is that two? a little differently about Gladstone's whole theory of colorblindness. Hmm. Called this guy named Jules Davidoff. Professor of neuropsychology, London University. And a few years back, he got interested in this particular tribe in Namibia called the Himba. The Himba. Like many languages in the world, they don't have a different word for blue. You might think of them as like a very poor stand-in for Homer. All right. And to make a long story short, Jules went to Namibia. He sat down with a bunch of members of the Himba tribe, whipped out a laptop, and showed them 12 colored squares. All identical except for one. And there's actually some really cool video footage of his research assistant doing this. And he asked them, very simply, Which one is different? Now, you look at this and you see that 11 of these squares are green. A color we would call green. Very green. The other one is blue. This blue one, it's, it's shouting. It's like, hey, I'm blue. Over here, I'm blue. It's easy enough for us to do. It's a no-brainer. But the Himba, who don't have a separate word for blue in their language... They, they find the, this distinction a little difficult. When they stare at this screen, they just stare and stare. They don't see the difference between the blue and the green? It. No. Well, is there something wrong with their eyes? No, definitely not. We completely rule that out. They don't see color and individual colors differently. But then, wait. It's so easy to say that they're seeing different colors to us, and they're not. Well, then how does he explain it? Okay. When we, when we decide to put colors together in a group... And then give those colors a word, like blue... Something happens. He says what happens is that now that there's a category for that thing, the thing in the category jumps out. It gets louder and louder to your eyes. The category actually feeds back on your perception, so you notice it more. You're saying that having the word for blue unlocks your ability to see blue? Uh, I mean, it, that's how it feels to me, and Jules says, No, it's not quite that. He says without the word, you're still seeing the blue, no matter what. You're just not um, noticing it. <laughs> your eyes are just kind of glossing right over it. So you don't see it. <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's, 
it's harder to spot, says Jules. But whatever. I don't quite understand <laughs> that difference. The but blue would not jump out and, and say high five the way it does with us. But if it doesn't um, jump out to that extent, then this is starting to sound very Gladstone-y to me. Yeah. I mean, maybe he was a little right. Like, because if Homer had no word for blue and the word somehow enables the blueness of the blue, then maybe his world was less blue than it would be for us. I mean, maybe the blue went through his eyes in the same way, but it perhaps didn't get into his mind in the same way. Yeah, blue didn't matter. Wait a second. Do you know where this breaks down? Where? The f- sky. <laughs> I mean, you look up and there's the bluest blue in the world, and it's right there above our heads. It's been there since the dawn of time. So why wouldn't blue matter more? I mean, why wouldn't it be the first color? Instead of the last. Well, that's what I thought too. And I asked Guy about that. Yeah, why is the sky blue? Is is the the, the first question it's that you exact, always think? Allegedly, of. the first question that all children ask. Yeah. But I wanted to see how obvious or striking this blueness of the sky is. So I decided to make an experiment. Guy has a very young daughter. About eighteen months. She was learning to speak. What What's her name? Alma. I talked a lot about colors with Alma and taught her all the colors, including blue. We would play all these games that that dads play with their children. You know, pointing at objects. I would point at a blue object and ask her, what's the color of this? She would say, boo. Boo for blue. Okay. Soon enough, Alma was a total pro. She could identify any color. Show me the red object, show me the this. Right. The only thing I didn't do, and I asked my wife not to do, was ever mention that the sky was blue. That was the setup. So one day, Guy and Alma were taking a stroll, and they were practicing the colors. What's this tree? What's this? What's this? And then I pointed at the sky and said, what color is that? And she wouldn't give me any answer. Huh. Although she just a second before would ha- was happily telling me that something was blue on red or green. She just looked up and looked at me incomprehendingly. Sort of, what are you talking about? She thought you um, were kidding? I think she didn't understand what I was on about. Huh. In retrospect, there was no object there. There was nothing with color for her. You're just pointing into the void, basically. Pointing into nothingness. So she wouldn't say anything. But Guy kept asking every single time they went out. Of course, I would do it only when the sky was blue. And, and she I would never answer him. And this went on for two months. And then finally, she did consent to give me a color name, but it wasn't blue. It was white. <laughs> For, for a few times she said white, and then finally after a month and a half or two more months, she, she said blue for the first time. Wow. But even then it wasn't consistently blue. So she, then she said once blue, mm, no white, mm, no blue. Did she eventually decide though, you know what that it is blue? Well, no, she never said it this way, but eventually when I asked, it became consistently blue. So she just would say blue. Okay. This was for me, Really the point where I, I could, you know, convince myself, convince at least my heart that the sort of allegedly perfect example of blue um, is not, not so perfect. So, you know, for Homer, who, you know, never ever probably saw a blue object except the sky and the sea, never had a dad who sort of went on about blue objects and asking what the color of the sky was. The fact that he didn't lose sleep over it doesn't seem so strange uh, anymore. You know, it's kind of it's a, now that I've heard this, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, ruining the the moment when Alma decided the sky was blue. Let her have whatever color she wants it to be. It doesn't have to be blue. Weirdly, then, 
color is a loss of innocence. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. like having something fixed that for a while is just between you and your frenzied heart, you know, just... And the sky has many colors, truthfully. On the other hand, though, I'm disagreeing with myself now. If we all agree the sky is blue, then that's something we can share. That she can share. And then she's in conversation. And then eventually she'll understand, you know, this kind of blue. Emma, you saw me standing yeah, there aren't blue moons, but... But there, but you know what one would you know what it feels like. Oh yeah, it's not a happy night. <laughs> Our guardian star lost all his glow the day that I lost you. He lost all his glitter the day you said no. And his silver turned to blue Like him I am doubtful That your love is true But if you decide to call on me Call me Mr. Blue I still think it's the most beautiful color. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm, I, I, I just took red just to be contrary. I'm trying to think what actually my favorite color is. I don't really When know. you say you love me, then prove it by going out on the slide, proving your love isn't true. Call me Mr. Blue. I want to thank all the musicians who uh, were so generous to let us use their music this hour and joined in in our Covers of the Rainbow project. You heard Reggie Watts with Rainbow Connection, Barbara Bennery with Over the Rainbow, Lonesome Organist with Green Onions, Nymph with Brown Rice, Yellow Ostrich with Sound and Vision, Raya Brass Band with Paint It Black, Nico Muley with Big Yellow Taxi, Shearwater with Black is the Color, Eric Freelander with Blue in Green, Marcy Playground with Whiter Shade of Pale, The Heap with Mellow Yellow, Tao Win with Blue, Snowblink, you just heard, with Blue Moon, Dan Deacon right here with Colors, Busman's Holiday, Mr. Blue, and our very own Tim Howard, a.k.a. Soltero, performing Green River. Well, take me back down We'll be doing some cool things with these songs for the moment. Visit Radiolab.org. Hello, Radio Lab. This is Guy Deutscher. This is Brooke Watkins. This is Jason McCroy. Here's the message. Radio Lab is produced by... I don't know how to pronounce it. Jade Abumrad. Our staff includes Ellen Horn, Soren Wheeler, Pat Walters, Tim Howard, Brenna Farrell, Ren Levy, Dylan Keith, Melissa O'Donnell, and Sean Cole. With help from Douglas Keith Smith, Brendan McMullen, and Rafaela Benin. Okay. Special thanks to Sarah Montague. All hacks. Nick Capodice, Guy Levitt, Ivan Zimmerman, Aya Case, Judy Jaw, Winter Woody, Braga Guest Daughter, and Carver Throdson. Thanks, bye. End of message.